Hey, good morning. Happy Mother's Day. My name is Kevin Young. I'm, uh, I guess I'm going to say I'm part of the teaching team now because this is now my third time speaking here in church. So this is uh, third time's a charm. Uh, it being Mother's Day, I've, uh, in, I've injected some color into a couple of my slides. So this is a big stretch for the engineer. Uh, I've got some blues and some yellows, and uh, that's about the extent of the creative aspect you're going to see from me today. We're continuing. This is the second part of a, kind of a two-part, but you'll, you'll be able to get the hang of last week if you weren't here uh, pretty well from what I'm going to say today. Last week, uh, we talked about this chapter in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5 that talks about if we're in Christ, we're a new creation. And we're going to look at that again today. We're going to look at uh, kind of the ramifications of what it means to be a new creation in Christ. In particular, last week we talked about new creation. Are you flipping or am I flipping? Maybe this guy is not on at the moment. Let me see. So we have technology, but we'll see how technology works out for us. There we go. Okay. So we talked about new creation, the power of new creation, and there was two words that, that we talked about last week, faith and hope, as words that you can kind of remember to help you understand, hey, if I'm a new creation, how do I live like I'm a new creation? And this week we're going to talk about the second part of this passage in 2 Corinthians 5 on the ministry of reconciliation. This is a job that, that God has given to us as his new creations, a little job called reconciling the world to him. So we'll look at the passage here. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, become the righteousness of God. This, this to me, this is a passage that in the last few years that has just come into my understanding as meaning a whole lot about how we're supposed to be as followers of Jesus. And there's, there's kind of two amazing things in here. One is, if you are in Christ, you're a new creation. You're a new creation. You're not the old person that you were. You're a completely new person. What does that mean? What does that look like? We talked a little bit about that last week. We'll talk a little bit more about it this week. But as new creations, the second part of it is, as his new people, we're not just like new people who go around happy, but unto ourselves. We have a job to do. We have a task. It's a crazy task, if you ask me. It's reconciling the world to God. That's what he's given us the task to do as his people. And if you just think about that for a minute, it's, uh, it's a little staggering that we're supposed to do that. How is that possible? How could that possibly be? So let me, let me kind of recap a little bit about what we talked about last week. We have this idea that if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. This is essentially the gospel, right? This is the good news, that we are completely renewed in Christ. Our sins are forgiven. Our past is overcome. We're made new. We have a future. We have a hope with him. We're new creations. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's what we, that's what we get in Jesus. Okay. 
Uh, we talked about the resources that God makes available to his people as new creations. I mean, we're not just the same old people. Well, what resources does he make available? And I talked about energy. I used the word energy as just a way of thinking about the spiritual resources that he makes available. And I gave you four words, wind and water, power and light. And you'll find, you can find verses on each one of these words. Uh, in just back in chapter 4 in 2 Corinthians 5, you'll see that God who said, let there be light in the darkness has caused this light to dwell in us to reside in us. So we have the light that he spoke into the darkness at the beginning of creation. He gives that light to us. He puts it in us. talks about, in Ephesians, the power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's the same power that he makes available to us. So Jesus, crucified, dead, in the tomb, raised to life by God's power. Scripture says that's the power that he makes available to us. The power that raised Jesus from the dead. Water, Jesus is at a festival, and he declares, anybody who's thirsty, come to me, and I'll give you something to drink. Rivers of living water will flow from your life. Not a little bit of water, not like a drop. I think I just got hit by a drop. Not a puddle, not a trickle, not a river, but rivers. This idea of this, there's there's no limitation in what God is able to do in his people. He is not limited. We see the limits, right? We see the limits of our own selves. But he has rivers of living water available to us. Then the fourth word was wind. And this is uh, the, the scripture I gave was when Jesus appears to the disciples after the resurrection. They're locked away in a room, right? They're afraid. They're afraid that what just happened to him is going to happen to them. They're going to get dragged off by the authorities. And he appears to them. And he says, peace, right? Peace. And then he does this interesting thing. He breathes on the disciples. I just... Use your imagination. This guy stands up in the middle. You know, he's shown them that he's got these wounds in his hands. He's got the wound in his side. He somehow got through the locked doors. We don't know how he got in the room, but he got in the room. He didn't knock. He's there, and he breathes on them, right? That's the wind, the wind of God. It's his spirit. He breathes the spirit into them so that they can become new creations, new people, unlike the people that they were before, locked away in a room, afraid of what's going to happen to them. So, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. And God has made amazing, unlimited resources available to us to do the things that he wants us to do, to be the people that he wants us to be. Now, we are described in Scripture as like these fragile clay jars, right? We talked about that a little bit last week. You know, what shape do you find your... uh, your clay pot to be in. Mine's been dropped a few times, glued back together. It's got some pieces missing. You know, I got super glue in a couple of spots. It's uh, pretty worn and tattered. Doesn't look like it's really going to be up to the task, right? So, it's, you know, we're dealing with the reality that we are fragile clay jars. That's the kind of people that we are. Let's not be kidding ourselves that we're something more than that. But he promises to put the treasure. He promises to put all of these unlimited resources in that, in that kind of a vessel. And the great news in that is it doesn't really matter that our vessel is all busted up, hardly worth holding anything. It's not a problem for him. In fact, it's how he's chosen to do it. So that it's clear that the power that is in us is not from us, it's from him. Right? It's not about us, it's about him. So I think it's realistic for us to look at ourselves and say, yeah, I'm not up to this. You know, I'm not up to reconciling the world to God, and I'm not up to being much of a person. You know, I've had a hard life. I had troubles in my life. 
But the scripture says, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The past is done, the new has come. And you may indeed feel very much like that busted up pot, maybe even just a fragment of a pot, but it's not a problem for God. He promises to put treasure in that vessel. It's up to us to say, put it in there. Lord, I'm open. Please bring it. The two words that uh, we talked about last week to help you kind of hang on to this is faith and hope. Faith, you know, in Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is confidence. Faith is confidence. Confidence in what? It's confidence that what we hope for is actually going to happen. That's the definition of the confidence that what we hope for is actually going to happen. Now, when you came in this morning, you, uh, you picked out one of these very comfortable chairs that we have here. And, you know, you sat down in it, right? That was an act of faith. Sitting in a chair is an act of faith, right? You sit in the chair. You didn't pick it up. You didn't turn it upside down. You didn't study it. You didn't go kind of bang it on the ground. You might for some chairs, right? But you basically just sat down. You, you assumed that the chair was going to hold you up. You had confidence that the thing that you hoped for, I'm not going to hit my bottom on the ground, it's going to actually hold me up, that it would actually happen. You exercise faith in the chair. Faith, think about faith this way in terms of how we live in Christ. We have confidence that what we hope for is actually going to happen. Faith is, is a noun according to what, but it's really an action, right? Faith has no meaning unless it has a corresponding action, unless we do something with it. It's not a feeling. I feel faith. It's something that we demonstrate. It's expressed in love. And then we talked about hope as the second word. And I want to tell you that in that Hebrews 11:1, 1, faith and hope are two sides of the same coin together. And the question is, faith is confidence that what we hope for is actually going to happen. Well, what do we hope for? What do we hope for? And there's two words that we talked about, restoration and resurrection. Restoration is when Jesus returns, he's going to restore things to the way they're supposed to be. He's going to be done with evil. It's going to be removed for good. There's going to be no more tears. There's going to be no more sorrows. There's going to be no more disease. There's going to be no more dying. We're going to be with him. God is going to be present with us. He's be in our midst. He's not going to be in heaven and us on earth. He's going to be in our midst. We're going to be with him and with his family forever. He's going to restore all things. He's going to make all things new. That's restoration. Okay? Yeah, there's good news. No matter how bad life gets here, we hang on to that. The end, right? In the forever, that lasts forever, that's longer than this time that we have on earth, He's going to restore all things. And we're going to be resurrected. We talked about resurrection. It's the body that's in the ground, coming out of the ground, the ashes that got spread on the sea, coming somehow out of the sea. It's the matter that makes up our physical bodies being remade into heavenly bodies. It's a bodily, physical existence with him in a physical earth, heaven, with trees and mountains and water and everything beautiful more beautiful than the most beautiful place you've ever seen. We're going to be raised to new life in Him. We're not going to be like spirits floating around, right? We're going to be people that can hug, that can run, that can rejoice. We're going to be resurrected by Remember, uh, he, he gave a comparison of this body is like a tent, right? Like a little pup tent. 
And the body we're going to have in heaven is like this house. And I think I gave you a picture of the palace of Versailles, right? So my house is going to be, I don't know if it's going to be like that, but you get the idea. It's a contrast between a tent and a house. You want to live in a tent in the backyard, a pup tent? You want to live in a house. That's what the new body is going to be like. It's going to be like a house compared to this body, which is like a tent. That's what we hope for. We hope for life with him forever with an end to the problems that we've experienced in this life and all the problems that we see in the world in a resurrected bodily existence. So when you die today, we talk about life after death. Do you believe in life after death? One of the great questions that people ask. Well, the only body that's no longer in the ground at the moment is Jesus' body, right? The tomb is empty. He's been raised to life. He's the beginning of the resurrection. He's the first of the resurrection. When he returns, he's going to bring our bodies up out of the ground. And if we're still alive, we're going to meet him. Okay? But we're going to have renewed bodies. But for now, it's just his body that's been raised to new life. People that have died, right? My dad passed away last year. His body's in the ground. Still there. Where is he? Well, he's with Jesus. We know that, right? There is life after death. It's promised. The thief on the cross is promised that he's going to be with Jesus in paradise. So there is being with Jesus after you die. But until he returns, until the resurrection happens, we're not with him in the renewed bodies. Now, maybe the way to think about this is in the context of infinity, it all kind of happens together. No, somebody who's into that kind of thinking can noodle on that one a little bit. But we have life after death. But what we really long for is the life that comes after life, after directed bodily life with him forever. We hope for restoration. We hope for resurrection. The other thing we talked about is the nearness of heaven. And when Jesus came and began his ministry, he said, hey, repent. Turn your life around, right? Start going in the other direction. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is near. In fact, I said the word heaven really is better translated heavens. It really means space around us and all the way out to the farthest reaches of heaven. And so he said it's near, or some translations say close at hand. So I want you to think about, when I take a breath, that's how near heaven is. Right? It's as near as the atmosphere around my head. It's not far away. It's not, heaven is not distant and you know, really irrelevant to life. It's not out way behind the moon or behind the space shuttle, somewhere out beyond the space station. It's near. It's come near in Jesus. It's near us, okay? It's as near as the air we breathe. It's as near as our hands. It's close at hand. It's not far at all. So we're new creations in Christ. And it's partly to be with him, but it's also because we have to do. That's what we're going to talk about this week. So let's go back to this scripture. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... That person is a new creation. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Everything that we've done that's bad, everything that we've done that we're embarrassed about, everything that we've done that we know is terrible, he doesn't count it against us anymore. It's done. Done. He's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We're his ambassadors. We're Christ's ambassadors. Okay? He's making his appeal through us. 
So we implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So before I continue, I want to—I guess I want to give you the kind of final challenge about this, and it's a theme that I think is important for what I'm going to talk about today. There's the word. I didn't make it up. You can find it in your Bible. Okay, That's what it says, and there are many words like it. But do these words actually mean what they say? That's the question. Right? Are, or are they what I call pretty words? The words that we read, we kind of go, hmm, interesting. If, if that were true, that would be really cool, right? If that were true, that would be cool. Isn't a lot of Scripture kind of like that? If that were true, wouldn't that be nice? What I want to say is, hey, by faith, you need to say it's true. Faith is deciding, it's confidence that what we hope for. Faith is saying that this is true, and I'm going to live my life accordingly. Right? I'm going to live now in light of that Scripture. I'm going to honor God by saying it's true, by living as if it's true by believing that it's true, by soaking on it, by taking it in. And that's the challenge, right? So it's the challenge that I want to give you right now as I continue. Are these words true? Do they mean what they say? And do they mean what they say for you? Not for me, right? Not for somebody else. Not for Clara. For you. And for anybody else who's in Christ. And is it true that God is going to reconcile the world to himself through us? People sitting out here. That's his plan. Pardon? Strangely enough, uh, what are the odds of that working? Right? That maybe is what we're thinking. Well, maybe that's not right. Maybe he doesn't really expect to reconcile the world to us. Well, you got this thing called commission, and you see it appear in, in uh, various forms in certainly the first three Gospels. So Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and earth. Therefore, because he has all the authority, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Okay. Make disciples of all the nations. And then he told them, go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone, everywhere. Except for the people down the street on the block there in the corner that picked me off. No, everyone everywhere. That's the message. It's for the whole world. Okay? And he says, it was written long ago that the Messiah must suffer and die and rise again from the dead on the third my authority. Take this message of repentance to all the nations. Beginning in Jerusalem, there is forgiveness of sins for all who turn to me. You are witnesses of all these things, and now I will send the Holy Spirit, just as my Father promised. But stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. So there's that power word. And notice the, the change here, the change. We had above, I've been given all authority, that's Jesus. Now he says, with my authority, right? Take the authority that I have as God's Son, and with that authority, take this message of repentance, of turning away from the way that we've lived to him, take it to all the nations. I don't think there's uh, much doubt that the message of reconciliation or the ministry of reconciliation is on us to do. We still may be thinking, well, but yeah, but that's for the evangelist. You must mean that's for somebody. That's not what it says, and you're going to have a tough time kind of wiggling your way out of this with Scripture. Well, let's talk a little bit about the nations. 
this really goes back to the beginning, right? It goes back to the book of Genesis. For Abraham will certainly become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. So even back to the promise that was given to Abraham in Genesis, we see that God intends to bless the nations through him. It starts back at the very beginning when he starts to call out a people for himself in Abraham. And through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, all because you've obeyed me. So Abraham, he obeys God, right? His faith is reckoned to him as righteousness. This is before Christ ever came. It's his descendants now, the people that descend from Abraham. Who would that be? Us. There you go. It's through your descendants all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so God intended the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, to be a blessing to all the nations. They didn't necessarily live up to that task very well. But all the descendants of Abraham are intended to be a blessing to the nations. And then you see in Isaiah when there's, you start to get the prophetic words about the Messiah coming, the one who's going to set the world to rights. And you, the Lord's servant, will be a light to guide the nations. You will open the eyes of the blind. You will free the captives from prison releasing those who sit in dark dungeons. So then Jesus is born. Is he the Messiah? Is he the one that's going to set the world to rights? So let's read about his birth. At At that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him and had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That day the Spirit led him to the temple. So when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord, as the law required, Simeon was there. He took the child in his arms and he praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people Israel. So we see Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises that were given to Abraham. He's the light of the world, revealing God to the nations. We have Abraham, we have his descendants, we have the promise of the Messiah, we have the Messiah. And then we have Jesus' followers, his disciples. That would be us. We read in Galatians, What's more, the scriptures looked forward to the time when God would declare the Gentiles, the people outside of faith in him, to be righteous because of their faith. God proclaimed this good news to Abraham long ago when he said, All nations will be blessed through you. So all who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing Abraham received because of his faith. Okay? All of us who put our faith in Christ, we receive the blessing that God gave to Abraham. We can be a blessing to the nations. That's that's a promise. I mean, Abraham, one guy, old, right? Hopeless situation. They're never going to have a kid. Through him, all nations are blessed. God's able to do that. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. Right? There's nothing that is impossible for him. So last week, I gave you two words to kind of help you understand what it means to be a new creation. Faith and hope. Right? Just think of it as a coin. Faith and hope. Two sides. The word I want to use to help you get your your mind wrapped around and your heart wrapped around the ministry of reconciliation is love. And it begins with God's love for us. We probably all have this one memorized, right? For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only son, that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Now, we know this one, right? We, this, this one is so familiar. It's kind of like the Lord's Prayer. We've said it so many times, the words just sort of pass through our mind. They don't, even, they don't even have a connection to us. But we know how God loves us, right? We know that he loves us. How? Because Jesus came, right? Because he gave his son, because he suffered, because he died, and because he was raised to new life. That's how we know it. We know that God loves us, not because we feel that he loves us, but because he gave his son. Because he sent his son into this world to save it. You know, think about where Jesus was, right? He was in heaven. He was in a glorious place. He was in a place where everything worked, where his will is done. And he was willing to leave that place. You know, I heard a great message one time about the downward mobility of Jesus. You know, we talk about upward mobility, about kind of as we go along in life, becoming upwardly mobile, moving up to higher stations in life. Well, Jesus, if you follow his life from heaven down, ending as a prisoner, right, as a hung on a cross with common thieves, you know, he kept lowering his mobility. He had the downward mobility of Christ. He was willing to come down and be with us. He was willing to come down and be in our mess so that we could be with him. So in light of that, how should we live? Well, either way, Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So we've stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, how differently we know him now. So one way that we respond is we live being controlled or urged on by Christ's love, right? That's, that's what should be the operative force for our lives. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. So there's a challenge. And how do you live your life? Right? I st- still kind of pay attention to myself. I still, you know, put a lot of effort into that. But there's a challenge here. We shouldn't be living for ourselves, right? We should be living for Christ who died and was raised for us. And we have Jesus' example. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. So we're supposed to imitate God in everything we do. It's like a little kid that is watching his parents, mom or dad, and and imitates, right? We learn how we're supposed to be as we grow by imitating, you know, the behaviors of our parents. Hopefully we learn good things and not just some bad things. But in this case, we have the best example, right? We have God. We have Christ's example. And his example is sacrifice. It's not insisting on his own way. It's laying down his life for us. And if we do that, you know, we have this pleasing aroma, right? Our lives are kind of like that person is nice to be around. That person is, you know, makes me feel good, right? That person... I experience, I feel loved. I feel something when I'm with that person. So if you think about your life as leaving an aroma, 
you know. Okay? What kind of aroma are you leaving? Stinky? Love and mercy. But you, dear friends, must build each other up in your most holy faith, pray in the power of the Holy Spirit, and await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will bring you eternal life. In this way, you will keep yourselves safe in God's love. And you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. Show mercy to still others, but do so with great caution, hating the sins that contaminate their lives. So just, I'm flipping a lot of scriptures at you, but they're all kind of of the same theme. We build each other up. Church should be building each other up, right? We should be encouraging one another. We pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. We wait patiently for God's mercy to come to us as we gain everlasting life with Him and with His family. And no matter what happens in this life, we're safe in God's love. It doesn't matter what things come our way because we're safe in God's love. Our future with Him is secure. In fact, we can start to live maybe differently than the world lives because we don't have to worry about our future. It's secure. We show mercy to people on the fringe. Right? These people that you see sometimes in church life that are out there on the edge, they're not quite sure they, they really get it. Is it really true? Is he re- does he really love me? Am I really okay with him? We show mercy to those people, and we show mercy to those who are outside the family altogether. We know that judgment's coming. You understand that? Judgment is coming. When he returns, it's not just to rescue us, but it's to be done with evil. He's going to judge it for what it is, and he's going to banish it forever. It's going to be done. He's going to destroy it, finally. So we rescue people from that judgment, welcoming them into God's precious family. And love is costly. So then I heard a loud voice shouting across heaven. This is from Revelations. It has come at last, the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ, for the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth the one who accuses them before our God day and night. And they have defeated him by the blood of the Lamb and by their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. So you have here, you know, how are we right with God? It's just because of his blood. It's the blood of Jesus that was poured out. That's all we have. Church attendance doesn't help. It may be a good thing, but it's not the basis upon which You know, God loves us. He loves us even while we're his enemies. So we have the blood, and that's all we have. And we have our testimony, right? By their testimony, they defeated the evil one. So it's important that we have our testimony out there. It's how we defeat the enemy. It's how we help God extend his kingdom. And they didn't love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. That's kind of a challenging scripture, and there's a lot of them in the Bible like that. But it's a, it's a serious question. It's an important question. Do you love your life so much that you're not willing to risk, that you're not willing to extend yourself so that somebody else can have the benefit of knowing God? So we have this ministry of reconciliation, this task that we've been given. God's going to reconcile the world to himself through us. Kind of an improbable task, if you ask me. 
But it's not an impossible task because God's made everything available that we need to do it. But we have to love the lost. We have to care about people that don't know him. I mean, we're supposed to be the blessing to the nations. You've got to have a heart for people that are outside, right? Those people that cut you off. Those people that seem to be protesting about, you know, whatever, burning flags and this and that. There's two things I think we can do to love the lost. And one is to pray in faith, what I'll call prayers of faith. And the second is what we do in love for people, right? Deeds of love. So go back to the John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God gave his son to demonstrate his love for us, right? He gave his son so that we could have life. But he gave his son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish. They'll last forever, right? They'll live forever with him. That's the reason why he sent his son, is to rescue people from the destruction that's coming without him. He doesn't want people to perish. He wants them to live with him forever. That's his heart. In Ecclesiastes 3, we read, God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He's planted eternity in the human heart, but even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. In every person in the world, no matter how troubled they are, no matter how angry they are, no matter how uncaring they are, God has planted a longing for home in their heart. Eternity in their heart. I mean, I use the word homesick as the, as the title to this slide because that's really the state of the world, right? There's a longing for something better than what we've known. It may be buried, right? It may be underneath a whole lot of hurt and a whole lot of anger and a whole lot of bad stuff that's happened, but it's there and it's a point that we can pray about. God, cause eternity in that person to kind of swell, to agitate, to irritate, to somehow cause them to desire something more than what they've experienced in this life. So I want to give you a few, a few ways of praying in the category of prayers of faith. And we'll start with the great prayer, right? the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will. We, right, we know that one. Know it by heart, probably. Said it lots of times. What does it mean? You know, we've said it so many times that the words just kind of slip through our mind without thinking. And so... I've kind of given you a paraphrase to that, to the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, dear Father, always near us, right? Near is our hands, near is the air we breathe. May your name be treasured in love. That's what we want. We want people to love God. We want people to treasure and love his name. Your kingdom come. Let your kingdom come. Let it expand. Let it extend on this earth, right? Take back, reclaim everything that belongs to you. It's his world. It's his creation his people that are fallen, that are broken, that are separated from him, that are in rebellion. Lord, take it back. Expand your kingdom. Expand. Reclaim it. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let your life-giving will be done. I mean, God's will, it's not constraining. It's life-giving. It's good for us. Let it be done here on this sad, lost earth, just as it is in heaven where you are. Don't we need his will to be done more? More and more in this earth. So Jesus says, pray this way, right? He's telling us, pray this way. So here's a way you can pray for people. This is a great way to just start to orient yourself. Lord, 
Let your kingdom come. Come to the earth. Come. Extend. Come. Increase. Come. Expand. Okay? Then we have this passage in, uh, in Matthew about the Lord of the harvest. Jesus traveled through all the towns and the villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, The harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. I told you about the pretty words, or I'll say the amazing words category. I'm going to put this, this text in the amazing words category. It tells his followers elsewhere that the things that I've done, you're going to do. In fact, greater things that I've done, you'll do. Okay? So we have that. He went around healing every kind of disease and illness. So we're supposed to, if we believe that word, be able to heal people. Right? Same things that he did, and even greater things than that. He went around bringing good news to people, not just with words, but with deeds, with actions of healing and restoration. And he saw people's lives, and he was moved with compassion. He looked at people, and he said, they're like sheep without a shepherd. Now, we see people, and maybe we see, well, you know, that person's just sort of taking everything for their own life, right? They're making money, they're buying things, they're living for themselves. But it's still not a life that satisfies, right? It doesn't satisfy in the long run. And Jesus looked out at the crowds, and he just—he was sad, and he had compassion on them. And he says some amazing things. He told his followers to pray. He said, pray to the Lord of the harvest. Pray that he will send more workers into his fields. Why? Because there's a great harvest and it's already ready to be gathered in. It's there, sitting there. The stuff's in the field, sitting there, waiting to be harvested. I mean, I think sometimes we think, oh, you know, who will believe, right? It's so hard for people to come to faith in Christ. But he says, hey, the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is great. It's ready. The problem is, who's going to get out there? Start gathering. So we pray to the Lord of the harvest, send more workers into the field. Well, who are the workers? Who's, who's he going to send? Who's going to go? Right. Look quickly to somebody else. Look to your right or to your left. Not me. Must be them. No, I think he's speaking to us, right? He's speaking to his followers. Pray that he'll send more people, equip more people, prepare more people to get out and to make him known. So you got the Lord's Prayer you can pray. You've got pray to the Lord of the harvest. This is a great prayer in First uh, Timothy 2. Paul says, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. So if you ever have any questions about who you're supposed to pray for, this one should settle it. As you make your requests, plead for God's mercy upon them and give thanks. That's a genuine prayer. God, have mercy. Have mercy on that angry guy. Have mercy on that guy that just did this terrible thing. Have mercy on these people that are lost. I mean, they're living for themselves, and they're so lost. Have mercy. We plead for God's mercy, and we give thanks. And we're supposed to pray this way for kings and all others who are in authority so that we can live in peace and quietness and godliness and dignity. 
this is good and pleases God our Savior when we pray this way. For He wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. God desires people to know Him. It's His will. It's His desire. It's His heart. He wants people to know Him. There's only one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and people. He is the man, Christ Jesus. He gave His life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message that God gave to the world at just the right time. This is a way you can pray, and this is the way I kind of, I've learned to pray here in the last few years, is to plead for God's mercy for people that He's laid on my heart. Every day, Lord, have mercy on so-and-so. Have mercy on so-and-so. We can pray in obedience to this. No doubt that we're supposed to pray. It's a question of will we pray, right? Will we carry that burden? And then we have in John 16 the, the Spirit. Jesus talking about when the Spirit comes. And when He comes, He'll convince the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. The world's sin is unbelief in Me. Righteousness is available because I go to the Father and you will see Me no more. Judgment will come because the prince of this world has already been judged. Fundamentally, the problem that people have, the basic sin boils down to not believing that Jesus is the way home. I mean, there's all the other kind of sins that you can think about, but in the end, it's not believing that God sending His Son to die for us is the way home. So we can pray, Holy Spirit, come. Come and convince. Come and convict that person that Jesus is the way, that Jesus is the truth, that Jesus is the life. Because in the end, it's not about your argument. You're going to have a tough time arguing somebody into the kingdom. People tend to not like that too much. You have to have that sort of realization at some point that this is true. Somehow you're convicted that I've been living right life the wrong way. Somehow you become convinced that he's the way. Right? He's the one. I may not understand everything about him. I may not understand very much at all. But somehow I decide that Jesus is the way. So this is kind of a fourth way to pray. Right? Come Holy Spirit. Convict. Convince people of their sin. Convince them that Jesus is the way, that he's the truth that he's the way to real life, right? The life we were intended to live. And then in the second category, deeds of love. So I'm going to say pray. Praying for people is an act of love, right? Taking a little of your time, getting on your knees, and praying for people. It's a way of loving people. I was trying to think when I became a Christian at age 17, I was a senior in high school. My parents divorced. My high school science teacher invited me to study scripture. This is in a public school, right? Oh, he can't do that. Well, I don't know. He did it. But I was thinking this morning, I wonder how, how long he prayed for me. I met him as a freshman. I took a photography class as a junior. We went on a field trip to Death Valley. Took some great pictures there. I TA'd for him in chemistry and physics. And then he invited me as a senior to start to study scripture. And I know he prayed for me for a long time. I know it probably took a lot of prayers to prepare my heart to be when he asked, hey, you want to come study? I was like, yeah. I mean, why? I had no interest in God. I had no, I thought he was, you know, irrelevant. But somehow at that time when they asked, and I, so I think prayer is an act of love, right? Prayer is a way that we serve people. But then we can also go do things. So they know we are Christians by our love. I'm, not, I'm giving you a new commandment, love each other. 
in case you're not clear, love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. Right? So how is the world going to experience God's love? I mean, you can say John 3.16 to them. You can flash it in the football game from the end zone camera. But how do they know that God loves them? When they see his people loving each other, living kind of life that's extraordinary. Like, I haven't met people like that before. I haven't met people that will do that before. They're not like the people that I encounter in life. They're going to know we're Christians by our love for one another. So that's an important thing for us to think about. How do we live together? And then we serve people. This is Paul saying, I too try to please everyone in everything I do. I don't just do what is best for me. I do what is best for others so that many may be saved. So here's a guy, as he kind of grew in Christ, just decided, I'm not living for myself anymore. I'm living for Jesus, and I'll be whatever I need to be, and I'll do whatever I need to do for the sake of other people so that they can be saved. How, How do you live your life? How do you orient your life? How do you think about other people? Right? What do you choose to do? What's important to you? We're almost done here. This is a passage from Thessalonians. It's about the Thessalonian church. And I think it's a great passage to just tie a lot of this together and what a body can be like. So we have the body of Christ. We always thank God for all of you. And pray for you constantly. This is Paul talking about the Thessalonian church. As we pray to our God and Father about you, we think of your faithful work, your loving deeds, and the enduring hope you have because of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there you have faith, hope, love. All right? Ways of thinking about many ones in Christ are a new creation. We know, dear brothers and sisters, that God loves you and has chosen you to be his own people. For when we brought you the good news, good news had to come, right? It didn't just happened. It had to be brought to them. It was not only with words, but also with power. For the Holy Spirit gave you full assurance that what we said was true. The Spirit convinced them. Okay? And we know of our concern, uh, we know, uh, excuse me, and you know of our concern for you from the way we lived when we were with you. So you received the message with joy from the Holy Spirit in spite of the severe suffering it brought you. In this way, you imitated both us and the Lord. And as a result, you've become an example to all the believers in Greece, throughout both Macedonia and Achaia. So here is a church that we see faith in action. We see hope. We see love coming together as the good news comes to them. The Holy Spirit brings them assurance that the good news is true, not with words only, but with power. And as a result this church becomes an example to all believers. Let's continue on. And now the word of the Lord is ringing out from you to people everywhere. So now it's going out from that body. That body that the good news was brought to is now ringing out from them, even beyond Macedonia and Achaia, even beyond Greece. Wherever we go, we find people telling us about your faith in God. We don't need to tell them about it, for they keep talking about the wonderful welcome you gave us and how you turned away from idols to serve the living and true God. And they speak of how you are looking forward to the coming of God's Son from heaven. Restoration and resurrection. The return of God's Son from heaven, Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. He's the one who has rescued us 
from the terrors of the coming judgment. So we have this body. The good news comes to them. And then from them, it's ringing out to people everywhere. These are people of great faith, even in the face of severe suffering. These are people that are full of hope in Jesus' return and his rescue from judgment. talked about the words, right? Are these pretty words or are these words that are true? And I, I think I want to bring it home to here is, do we take Jesus seriously, right? Do we take him seriously? Or we just say, you know, he's nice, we love him, I feel warm when I think of him, right? But these words, they're hard to understand and they probably can't be true because I don't really see it happening. And the question I have is, you know, are you going to take him seriously? So if you go back just a few verses in 2 Corinthians 5, it says, so whether we're here in this body or away from this body, this is a, the verses above that are about resurrection. We covered those last week. Our goal is to please him, for we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. Because we understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord, we work hard to persuade others. So you probably think, no, wait, I'm saved by grace. I don't, you know, I'm, I don't have to be judged. But there's a lot of places in Scripture where it says we're going to stand before Christ. We're going to stand before Him and give an account of our lives. Now it doesn't mean that, you know, our eternal salvation hangs on that. But I think He's going to deal with us according to how we live. This is something to think about. It's, it's quite sobering to me. You know, one day standing before Him and saying, yeah. You know, I just got locked into video games and I was just too busy. Or I got locked into my career. Or I got locked into something else. I didn't have time. I kind of knew, but I didn't have time. So I want to challenge you to take him seriously. To think about, am I taking him seriously? Where am I not taking him seriously? Where am I not taking his word as true? We're all going to stand before him and give an account. And because of that, Paul says... We understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord, and we work hard to persuade others, right? We work hard to make sure other people have a chance to know him. I put this picture up last summer when the first time I spoke in church. This is my next-door neighbor, Ben. Um, When we moved into the house in Oakland in 1984, he was born, I think, around that week. And I think he's going to turn 27 this year. So I've known him a long time. I've known him since the time he was born. Um... Maybe a year and a half ago, two years ago, he asked if he could go visit the orphanage that we're involved with in South India and begin a little flock, which he did. And he kind of went on a long 15-month journey. He went up into North India, into Nepal, into Pakistan, way up into the mountains of Pakistan. And uh, he's kind of on a spiritual journey. You know, he grew up in a secular home. He um, has his own ideas about how life works. And we've had some discussions about that. But I think the thing that has helped me most kind of get myself oriented in in how to live and how to take Jesus seriously is to think about Ben, somebody that I know, somebody that I watch grow up from being a little guy, somebody that I care about deeply, somebody that doesn't follow Jesus, somebody that doesn't believe that he is the way home. And that bothers me a lot. And one of the things that's happened to me as, as I've, prayed a lot more is I cry. I weep. 
And it's weird. I, I kind of sit there and go, why? Why all the tears? But somehow I think God's heart is for lost people, right? He cares desperately that people would come to know him. So last week I gave you a homework assignment. I said, go think of people that you know, neighbors, family members, parents, siblings, kids, that don't know him, that don't believe that he is the way home. Let that be a motivation to start to live as new creations in Christ and it's to start to reconcile people to him, to pray and to think of ways, right? I pray for Ben every day. I pray for his family every day. And I look for ways to connect with him. I look for ways to, hey, Ben, what are you thinking about? You know, you were, that was not only a, uh, a cultural journey that you went through, but it's kind of like a spiritual journey. You, you, you touched on Christianity. You touched on Hinduism. You touched on Sikhism. You touched on Buddhism. You touched on uh, Islam. You know, what do you make of all that? He's telling me, you know, well, they're all religions are the same. Okay, well, that's something to talk about. Really? All religions are the same. We can talk about that. So I look for opportunities to engage him. I look for opportunities, you know, with grace and undergirded by a lot of prayer to connect him with the questions of life that are most important, right? What's most important? And we've got X number of days. What's most important? So we who know the Lord have been given the awesome task of reconciling people to God. And it's true, we're fragile clay jars. We're not up to the task. But we're also new creations who have access to awesome treasure for the task. Just remember, wind and water, power and light. God is not lacking, right? We lack nothing for the things that he wants us to do. And it's his desire, it's his heart that everybody would come to know him. So if you're praying, God, make yourself known to this person, you're praying in his will. That's what he wants. He kind of wants us to join with him in that. Right? He's looking for us to partner with him. He's looking for us to cry out to him. Prayer is essential to reconciling people to God. And there's nobody that we shouldn't be praying for. So if God lays people on your heart, pray for them. Right? Who else is going to pray for them? There's a lot of people I think about that I pray for. I wonder, is there anybody else in the world that ever even thinks about them? Well, maybe I'm the only person that prays for them. It's the Holy Spirit who convinces people of their sin. And we should live a life of loving others into the kingdom of heaven. Faith, hope, and love, right? Those things are going to endure forever. Faith, something we exercise. Hope, we're clear about what our life is going to be like in the end. We love like crazy. We love like Jesus, right? We love by praying. We love by serving. And we know that nothing's impossible for God. Nothing is impossible for Him. We see all the impossibilities, but He sees no impossibilities. Right? Well, I hope your faith is encouraged and strengthened. I hope you have a much firmer understanding of the hope of heaven, of God's plan to restore heaven and earth and to raise us to new physical, bodily life with Him and His people in perfection forever. If you're in Christ... You are a new creation. Everything you need to be an amazing follower of Jesus and a bringer of his awesomely good news is available to you by faith. Right? There's nothing that's not available to you. I hope that your love for him and for this sad, broken world that he cares for so much has increased. That your heart for the lost has been enlarged. It's not enough that we're saved. It's not enough that our immediate family is saved, that our loved ones know him. 
We've been given true and abundant life, and we have a responsibility to share that life with a world that is in desperate need of it. This is our fearful responsibility to bring this good news to as many people as we can. In fact, when I think about the church, right, think about this church, I believe that the kind of growth that this church or any church really needs is from people that don't know him. It's not attracting Christians into this church because we got better sound and music or more comfortable chairs, right? It's growing because people are coming to know him. Think about the early church. It grew because people came to know Jesus, not because there was a nice program there. It's time to move in a new direction. It's time to take Jesus more seriously than we ever have before. So my question is, are you in? Are you going to do it? I'm done. Think about uh, ministry time that we have at the end of our services. There's anybody here who's not a follower of Jesus, but that thinks that they want to learn more. They'd like to become a follower of Him. Come see me or anyone up front here after the service. Just come up and say, hey, I heard something that made me interested. I heard something that I want to talk to you about. If this message, which probably was a little on the long side, if this didn't phase you a bit, it's like that guy talks a long time. I don't know what he's saying. You know, come up and ask somebody to pray for you that God will warm you up, right? That he'll give you a vision for the lost. That he'll give you a vision for what life is supposed to be about. If you're in Christ and you've been challenged by what has been shared these last two weeks, then come forward with prayer and say, hey, this is the thing that hit me. It's this thing that I need to be prayed for. You know, coming forward, moving out of your chair, not just ducking out the back door when you sort of feel God tugging at you, is an act of faith, right? God honors the steps we make. Me being up here speaking, I never did this in my life before last August. It's not that great of a feeling when you're preparing and you realize I actually have to go stand up in front of a group of people and talk. You know, it's a little intimidating, but I believe I was supposed to get up and speak, and so I'm doing it. Right? It's a step, and God honors the steps we make, even when we kind of don't do the best. Come forward to ask Him to fill your life with all that you need to be the person that He's called you to be and to do the things that He's prepared for you to do. He has things for you to do. Right? He has people that He wants you to touch. He has people that he has you specifically chosen to be the one that brings his love to them. Your life is not without meaning. It has all the meaning that he will give you. Come forward to turn from living life your way or trying to save your life rather than laying your life down before him and saying, hey, wherever you want to do, wherever you want to take me, I'm willing. So let me pray. Lord, don't let us stay the same. Don't let us be numb to the needs of the people around us and the world around us. Shake us if we need to be shaken, but don't allow us to leave here unmoved by your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the mercy that you've poured into our lives. We owe everything that we have, everything that we are to you. Amen.